Blog Talk Radio. Let's get lost in a better place. Pick up a bird, travel through time and space. So much to learn, so much to see. A chance to escape reality. Open your mind and your heart. For a fresh new start MJ Network will bring you there So let's talk about it When life and on the air Good morning everyone, this is Book Talk with Fran Lewis Brought to you by MJ Network, MJ after my sister, Marsha Joyce, and we have award-winning author Alan Zendransky here. We're going to talk about incident at Miguel. So I'm going to read you something that you definitely will entice you to read the book and get a whole bunch of copies for Mother's Day coming up. So Zendransky transports his readers to 1959 Cuba, where we meet the Cohen brothers, Aaron and Moses. Moses? They share a name and a Jewish heritage, but little else. Aaron is a lawyer and an official in Batista's government. His brother is a communist rebel and supporter of Castro, yet they are brothers. It takes them a lifetime to discover what that means. Incident at San Miguel is a compelling family saga, and I recommend it. And it was given to him by storyteller Miriam Bradman Abrams. So welcome to MJ Network. This book, really, I just sat down and read it and couldn't put it down. Hello? Hi. Oh, I, I didn't know. <laughs> I apologize. Hi, friends. Great seeing you. Thank you so much. Uh, yes, uh, I, I, I'm just delighted that uh, you liked the book and you loved the book and that you couldn't put it down. Um, it, it was a tremendous, uh, it, it was a tremendous um, honor for me to be able to write this book, for Miriam to come mm. to me with her story. And uh, I, you know, I know that she's very happy and her parents are very happy with the final results. Well, that 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 is a definite honor to get somebody to write something like that. It's it's amazing. So why did you decide to to share it, and why this particular one? And of course, Cuba and Castro. There's a lot of controversy about that. So what do people hope Batista would? would why why do they help me be gone? Yeah. Well, uh, let, let me start with why I wrote the book. So yeah. how this all came about. So. Um, when I wrote my first book, my debut novel, Forgiving Master Rothman, I submitted it to, um, it's hard to believe that's 10 years ago, uh, I submitted it to the Jewish Book Council for a review. They, in turn, asked Miriam Bradman Abrahams to write the review. She was, uh, uh, the, she was the book liaison for National Hadassah at the time, mm. um, and she, she wrote the review. Now, it turns out that Miriam and I had a friend in common. Her name was Sue Cass. And Sue arranged for us to meet. When we had lunch that first time, we became friends, and uh, she told me her story, uh, which is uh, about her family, uh, and that she was born in Cuba, that her grandparents had come as immigrants in the late 20s and, and 30s to Cuba and established lives there at a time when they couldn't come to the United States, and they came there from Poland, and uh, that her, par- you know, her, her parents were born there, and the, the lives that they had, and how when you know, her, other, her, her uncle had become a communist, and her father was an attorney, mm. and uh, he worked for the National Bank of Cuba, and she told me her story, which was very interesting. Now, 
you know, I, just as a reminder to you and also for your listeners, um, so give me Maxima Rothman, it was the story uh, in part about the Jewish refugee settlement in Sosua in the Dominican Republic. So there was a clear connection there. Uh, that that uh, Sosua was established in 1939. It's a place where 850 Jews escaped the Holocaust. And my uncle and aunt uh, were among them. So there was a connection there because of the sort of Caribbean Latin culture, the Spanish-speaking Caribbean Latin culture mm. that both the Dominican Republic and Cuba shared. I'm Spanish-speaking, and, and so is Miriam, and we became friends. And over the years, she often said that she wanted to write something, write a book about, you know, the story about her uncle and her father and what had happened to them and their family. Now, you know, the, the problem with writing for many people is that life gets in the way, and she, you know, she had a job, and she was a, a mother and two children, et cetera, et cetera. And mm. finally, in 2019, uh, in sort of the late spring, around this time of year, prior to the pandemic, uh, she, uh, she called, contacted me and asked me if I would look over her 80-ish pages of materials that she had assembled over the years, interviews, historical accounts from her family about their experiences in Cuba because she wanted to write a memoir. So I, in turn, looked at the material, which was very compelling material. And um, what I realized is that, and I said to her, you don't really have a memoir here because a memoir would be a first-person narrative about you and how this had affected you, but you want to tell the story of your father and your uncle. So... You know, you might have a biography of some kind or some kind of a history. I said, but what you have is some really interesting stuff that would be great if you used in a novel. Uh, so I would be interested in writing. And would you, you and your parents be willing to share your story with me and let me use aspects of it and fictionalize it in a novel? She said, I think so. And she contacted her parents, and then her parents were interested in meeting me. And I went down to Brooklyn. Her father and mother live in Brooklyn. And I met with them, and I fell in love with them, and I fell in love with their story. So, you know, in terms of why this story, well, first of all, I write stories about ordinary people who are confronted with extraordinary circumstances and events, and that's exactly what this is. I also, you know, I I figured that if there was anyone who's going to write the story, it probably should be me. And Mm -hmm. I was having one with a friend of mine, who is the, um, he, he writes a blog called Uptown Collective. He's kind of the mayor of Washington Heights, where I live. He's a, a Dominican-American fellow, and, I, and he and I are close friends. He's read all my books, and I told him this story, and he said to me, Alan, there's no one else in the world who's more qualified to write this story than you. So, you know, I, I, I sat down with my parents again and talked about it, and they said, yeah, let's do it. And that's how the book was born. That's how the idea was born. So, well, um, I... I loved it. I, I loved the whole thing. I could imagine. And I just sat down and read it. I mean, I read in, you know, some some things about it before I did some research, and I'm saying, this is amazing. And then I was so, you know, people, brothers and brothers, brothers and sisters, two brothers that go in different directions. It breaks your heart. So tell us about Moises and Aaron and. One was one was a communist and was with Cuba, and the other one was was a lawyer and a banker. And how did you those those are true stories. So how did you how do they you know how do you would you describe both of them and what happened that they decided to go? They didn't talk to each other for forever. 
Okay, so let me start by saying that this is a fictionalized account of, of yeah, the experiences <laughs> and, and the lives of two brothers, the real, who are actually Juan and Solomon Bradman. So, um, you know, there are parts of this that are based on fact, and then there are parts that I've, mm. for, for which I take an extensive literary license. So I should say up front to your listeners that the actual incident at San Miguel, which is described in the book, in fact, never happened. That is completely mm. literary license. I needed a, an inciting incident, and I needed something to create a quid pro quo between the two mm. brothers. So I created this, this uh, scene, this, this incident of this, this uh, accidental killing that resulted in, in uh, you know, all the events that followed. And, but if, on the other hand, the Cuban Revolution is absolutely true, and it absolutely happened. So um, when I heard the story... Uh, and I was only able to interview one because Solomon died in 2012. So mm. the, uh, the story that I, that I established for the Moises character, which is Solomon's character, comes from what was reported by Juan and his wife, Paula, and other relatives who knew him, particularly uh, Paula's sister. So... Um, what I wanted to do was to take the basic facts of the story, which is that, that the Moises character, based on Solomon, was in fact a card-carrying believer. He was a communist, and he supported the Castro regime in the revolution. And I wanted to play that off of Juan, Juan who took a different uh, approach. Now, Juan was not necessarily uh, a supporter, wasn't a supporter of the Castro regime at all. He was an attorney, and he worked... Uh, within the system to bring about whatever change he could. And that's described in sort of the outlines of, his, of, of our own position at the bank. Um, and I took a lot of, um, the, you know, the pieces of the story, and I, I, I sort of stitched them together here with, you know, uh, fiction. So when I, uh, when I heard the story, the things that, that really jumped out at me because mm-hmm. I was only hearing one side of the story was, you know, well, what was going on in, in Wazez's head, in Solomon's head? Remember, Solomon and Wazez are the same character. And that I had to, I had to sort of look at from a, a point of view that was taken a few steps back. I was able to interview people who knew him. I was able to interview other immigrants and refugees mm-hmm. from Cuba who had lived at that time and had lived through those situations in order for me to determine, you know, sort of how what happened after the revolution would have affected mm. his life and his beliefs. In addition to which, there was this overriding question about how it was that ultimately Juan was able to get the visas that he required to get mm. out of the And while he never said to me straight out, I think behind the scenes, my brother manipulated this so that he, I could get out. I have to believe, having written and studied extensively about both fascist and communist regimes, I've written about fascism extensively in my other books, including The Interpreter and Forgiving National Orphan, you know, I have to believe that, uh, according to the story, and, and it's related in the book, that when he was looking for the visas, when he, when he went to the... Uh, visa office to seek the visas, a visa uh, official said to him, are you Solomon Bradman's brother? In other words, so in the book, it's, are you Waz's Cohen's brother? And he 
thinks about it and decides to answer truthfully and says yes. So two days later, he has disease. Mm. Well, you, you know, the, the obvious answer is that the official contacted the brother and the brother used whatever influence he had to get mm-hmm. the reasons. I don't want to tell the, the elitist the circumstances of what No, they want to read this. Because that would ruin the book. You know, I want you to, I want you to read the book. So uh, I, I'm only going to go that far. I hope that's enough of a teaser. Well, they better not, not read it because this is a powerful story. And just to let everybody know that um, my, my dermatologist takes my books. And I gave him 25 books yesterday that I read in the last three weeks, seriously. So this is number four from yesterday. Wow. Yes. Wow. And it goes added to the – his wife reminds me. She she blesses me every time I come there just to bring books. They're like, he's so excited. He says it's so much it's, – it's like having her own librarian that brings her books. She's happy. <laughs> she doesn't have to get them. And she likes this type. So we've made heck, and we get a feeling that he has his own agenda, and Aaron trusts him, trusts him. And why does his father, his parents believe one thing about the revolution, and how does the other brother clash with them? You talk about Hector? Hector, yeah. I don't know about it. Yeah, why does Aaron trust so him? So Hector, let's talk about Hector. So Hector is a completely fictitious uh, character. Hector yeah. is, is, is only based on... Um, I can't say it's based on a specific person. Hector is, is based on the idea of a particular type of person in, in these societies who can go either way with the, um, you know, sort of ebb and flow with, with the political winds. So Hector is not so much committed to anything in particular as he is committed to changing the existing system. So he becomes involved with the revolutionaries, but at some point, you know, he has a falling out with them. But Hector's position here. As, as a literary device, is to be able to funnel information to the our own character, the Aaron mm. character, so that Aaron has an idea of what's going on. And um, at this point in the story, uh, and maybe I should explain this to the potential to the readers out there, yeah. that an interesting thing happens between um, between the Moises character and Moises's family, meaning his brother Aaron and his parents, which is that they're they're Cubans, but they were also Jews. And there was a sizable community. There was this community of 15,000 Jews, mostly in Havana, prior to the revolution. Now, I'll tell you a few interesting things about this community. The community was composed of actually three segments. There was a a Sephardi segment that had arrived in um, Cuba around 1900, as there was big immigration out of the Ottoman Empire, particularly Syria, where a large number of Jews lived at that, at that time. Then there's an Ashkenazi community, which there had been dribs and dribs mm-hmm. coming in prior to 1924, but in 1924, there was this big change in the American uh, immigration laws. To make a little story short, it was very hard for Jews from Poland and Lithuania, what is now Lithuania and Belarus to come out to the United States at that point, so they started going to Cuba, because Cuba was referred to as Hotel Havana. It, there was no restriction on Cubans coming to the United States at that time. Very different than today. So if you went to Cuba and you became a Cuban citizen, and it took a couple of years, you know, three, four, five years later, once you became a citizen, you could freely emigrate to the United States. Many emigrate, many emigrates did that, but um, 
many states, and they established very, very good lives there. They were, for the most part, entrepreneurial people, business people. They established businesses, and they were, they, they were not, not that everyone was rich, but certainly the community was healthily middle class. And they were sort of a mirror of middle-class life in Jewish America in the 1950s by the time of the 1950s. There was also a third component of the Jewish community in, um, in Havana and Cuba, mm. which was American Jews who lived in Cuba because of their business, business interests. So it was a very Americanized community. Mm. So, so um, we have a co- couple of other characters that are interesting, yeah. too. Besides the fact, wait, let me cross this out. I don't need to ask this one. I got rid of the ones that tell too much information as I'm writing. Um, We have uh, Louis and Anna, and he, Moses seems to to trust her. And um, why do so many people think Fidel was the man of the house? That's surprising. Not really. Okay, so let me start with Fidel. Fidel Castro clearly yeah. is a, a historical personage, you know, um, and he doesn't make a personal appearance in this story, although Che Guevara and Raul mm-hmm. Castro do. Your question is, why do people support Fidel's revolution? Well, first of yeah. all, it was pretty much anyone but Batista. So, the, 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 the Batista regime was so corrupt and so oppressive. And it's one so you know, you, you could be walking down the street and, you know, a car would, would pull up and slam on the brakes and four goons would jump out of the car and they'd shoot down a guy in the middle of the street. And people knew. You know, that was Batista's people. Don't don't get involved. He was very corrupt uh, and he he really had turned the country into his own kind of little mafia fight. So they wanted to get rid of it. Now, Castro, you know, people are very, very funny about politics. People believe what they want to believe about mm-hmm. a particular political person relative to the circumstances they're living in. So in, in Castro, at that, in, in Cuba at that time, Castro was not himself, quote, a proclaimed communist, end quote. Mm-hmm. He was a leader of a revolution. He was a leader of a movement against Batista's corrupt government. So people stick their heads in the sand and they say, oh, well, he may have some people who are communists who support him, but he's not a communist, so it won't go that way. Well, it did go that way because ultimately, step by step, he did not only uh, embrace his own communism, but he led the nation on a, on a path to communism. Now, there are historians who question whether that would have happened had the United States not reacted so badly to the Castro Revolution. If the United States had, had openly embraced him and mm. welcomed him as a replacement for their ally, Batista, is it possible that perhaps, you know, he might not have gotten as far left as he did? We'll never know that, okay? Um, so I wanted to address that first. Now, Luis and Ana Teresa are important characters in the story, because Anna Therese is the love interest. And this is what I was going to mention before. It's important to understand yeah. that the reason why Juarez's uh, family rejects him is not because he's a communist, nor that Anna Therese is a communist. He rejects, they reject him because Anna Therese is not Jewish. Right. That's not a particularly smart move 
after the communist movement has taken over the country. And your son, if your communist son is a communist and he's involved in the new government, you might want to keep those channels of communication open. But the, the family, as was the case at that time in the 1950s, in this country, uh, the Cuban Jews were extremely opposed to their children intermarrying with non-Jews. And that was just a simple fact of matter. Look, I was born in this country. My parents were born in this country. And when I was a young man in the 70s and 80s, 1970s, 1980s, my parents made it very clear to me that they would never accept it if I brought home a woman who wasn't Jewish. Well, this was a very similar situation. They said, do not do this. And that, I make very clear, is sort of one of the, that's one of the odd things about this story, is the motivation for their rejection of this, uh, of Moises, of their son, mm-hmm. has more to do with faith, with religion, not faith, with religion and identity, religious identity, than it has to do with politics. But in the end, it was politics that really brought this family down. Now, Anna Teresa is a girl from the, the Campo, which is the mm-hmm. countryside in Spanish, and Luis is also a boy from the countryside. They are communists, and they are involved in the 26th of July movement, which was Castro's movement in Cuba at that time. I, I don't like referring to it in the book as the 26th of July movement because I don't want to run into any misunderstandings historically, so I just refer to it as the movement. And, you know, she, when she, when, when Juarez meets Ana Teresa, he kind of falls instantly in love with her. And he puts her up on a pedestal, and, you know, he's in love with her both for who she is, but also for her beliefs and the way that she lives her beliefs. Luis, Luis is pretty much a functionary. You know, he's a small character. He's, he's the, not, you know, he doesn't have a big part in the book, except that he's, you know, a, he is a leader of a cell within the movement, and they are part of his cell. So they're taking orders from him. And he is, um, you know, he eventually uh, he continues in the movement after the revolution, and he becomes an official in the government. And he is in constant contact with both of them. But the importance, it's important to understand that, you know, there's this question as to what it is about Ana Teresa that sparked this love interest with Montez. And, you know, what did he want out of the relationship, and what did she want out of it? You know, who got what in the end? But again, mm-hmm. why not ask about well, I have to tell you, I was brought up the same way. If it wasn't Jewish, you weren't coming in the house. And my grandfather, yes, my grandfather, my grandfather met. I met. I was. It was a friend of my my cousin's, and he was, you know, just sent to. I won't even tell you his name, um, to go out with me. And my grandfather said, "You may go out with her down the block. You have one hour. Be back, and don't ever think that you're coming back again." And I was like. Oh, this is not good. And we just talked, whatever, and I didn't say anything, one way or the other. And then when he called me again, and I said, as I, as my grandfather said, um, we'll just be friends from far away. And I never spoke to him again. And needless to say, the nasty comments I got. But you know what? My grandfather was right. So let's talk about Moses. And he had a job. What did he do? What was his job, and what did he investigate, and who was Professor Martinez and his relationship to Aaron as a sounding board? Um, okay, so let's start with uh, Moises, and let's understand who Moises is. So Moises yeah. 
Moises is, a, is an intellectual, and that's really important to this story. And the real Moises, Solomon Bradman, was also an intellectual. So his education is economic and political theory in both cases. And so he enters the movement with a knowledge of business because his, in real life, the Bradlands were in business. <coughs> Excuse me. They were actually... They were in reality in the two and levitating industries. That is absolutely true. <coughs> so um, he, he has a, a very, very, uh, very complete knowledge of business, and he studies economics, and he's, he believes in the socialist path. So, um, in terms of uh, in terms of the job that he gets. And this is where, you know, we go from real to Memorex. You know, I have mm-hmm. to construct a story, uh, a story that readers want to continue to read. They want to continue to turn the page. So in the story, in the, in the fiction, he becomes um, an official in terms of economic development, and his job is to uh, be a liaison at the early parts of the, after the revolution, in those first few years, 1959, 1960, 1961, with the business community to try to win, not necessarily support, but understanding from the business community of what it is that's actually going to uh, happen. Um, so he enters service in the government, and they use him, you know, and I, I did a lot of reading about mm-hmm. how, how Castro's people sort of uh, reorganized things to be able to try to bring the country, if not necessarily together, initially to try to get not the non-communist elements of the society to accept the inevitable. They didn't necessarily want them to leave. Well, they, they, they weren't, as history shows us, they were, not a, they, they were not terribly upset at the idea that those who did not agree with them did. That, that, that's a much more complicated. So he becomes an official in terms of economic development. Now, his preference is to be out there campaigning for the, for the new world, but that's not where he's put. Now, his brother in the book, Aaron, mm-hmm. he, has a diff- he takes a different path in life. He's older. Yeah. He's able to complete his education before the University of Savannah is closed. I forget what year that was. I think it was 1953, but I have to check it. Um, he becomes a, a, an attorney in, uh, in Cuba, and he goes to work for the National Bank of Cuba. And that's in real life. That actually happens. And mm. as a result, the real Juan Bradman did meet um, Che Guevara up front, face to face. And so in the story, the Aaron character, which is uh, Juan's, you know, the incarnation of Juan's character, he, he's working for the betterment of the country from the inside out. He has a mentor. That mentor is Professor Martinez, who's a minister. Mm-hmm. Martinez, the professor before that, and Martinez is, is, is he's in that position to help Aaron to move up the ladder. And in any in any culture at that time, not just in Latin America, that was kind of uh, it was sort of standard. You needed someone to help you. You needed what we call today a rabbi, 
who would help you up the rungs of the ladder, who would support you for a promotion, who would give you a recommendation, who would use their influence. And that's exactly what Martinez does. And Martinez is a very smart guy. But Martinez, like many, initially supported the top of the Bohemia Batista, but, you know, uh, within a few weeks, uh, certainly within a few months, they knew that uh, you know, they had let in a, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now, it's interesting because one of the things that uh, I took away from my conversations with Juan Bradman was I asked him, well, you know, how did you feel the day that um, uh, Castro won, that, 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 you know, they took Havana and, and Batista left? And he said, oh, we were delighted. We were cheering in the streets. We were happy. He said, but two weeks later, we knew we had made a huge mistake, that this was a big problem. So, you know, that's why when I said to you before, you know, it was anyone but Batista. But, well, you were thinking about it. You know, it's like our politics today. You know, you're going to find a way for, you know, for what we had a few years ago, which was a disaster. You're going to whitewash it. You're going to think about it differently. You know, things may not be perfect now, but the situation is certainly better. We don't want to go back to what we had before a few years ago with that person the same thoughts of the seed who will remain nameless. So That would be horrific if that person gets elected again and Americans don't open up their eyes and see what he really will like. God help us. So Aaron Aaron just is sort of blindsided. Is Hector's request for Aaron for Chai Chai? Jay, and he manages to advance over Aaron, and then what does he have to write in his report? I got really upset with that one. I go like, what? You're talking about Hector. Yeah, okay, Hector. So, He's not a uh, nice person, people. Hector, okay. Right. Hector is, uh, again, Hector is uh, really sort of a literary device. Okay, there was no Hector. There are people like Hector yeah. who work on yeah. the inside, um, but that he he was a complete completely a fictitious creation. So what happens with Hector is Hector is uh, he's a functionary at the bank and and he's trying to work his way up and he he is to or, or I should say Martinez uh, uh, sorry Aaron is to Hector the way that Martinez is to Aaron. Aaron mm-hmm. is Hector's mentor. So he could he could trust him and he does his dirty work for him and he's well connected. And then, you know, he brings information to Aaron, and and when Aaron can help him, he helps him. But what Aaron doesn't know is that he's also feeding, he's feeding information to the the rebels. And more than Mm -hmm. that, he says, how did you find this out? And he says, you don't want to know that. And he says, and then Aaron says, you're probably right, I probably don't want to know that. So what happens is that uh, once there's a victory, that they have someone placed at the bank. So they put him in, in, in there as a political, uh, a political, watch, a, a political uh, watch, watch, a guard. Well, uh, now, this is not uncommon in, in both communist and fascist societies. I mean, what we have to remember is that while communism and fascism have diametrically opposed economic systems, one is hyper-capitalist and the other is communist, they share a system of social So they have Hector infiltrated at the bank. So as you would do in Russia or China, there's always a political guy or political person who is in every office who's watching what everyone is doing to report it back to the party. Mm. Well, that's who he became. So 
you know, he, he was now in a position to, uh, to, to tell the party whether or not this person or that person, including Aaron and whoever, you know, was a friend or a foe. So in one way, you know, he's trying to protect Aaron. And the other side, he's also, you know, he has his own self-interest and he's trying to promote himself. So that's how he comes into this position. Uh, you know, that he's, he's put there, he's promoted there by the, the, the movement, by the places who go on movement after their victory. But at the same time, you know, uh, it's swallowed up to that as well, which is exactly what happened. So before I forget, tomorrow, this is back here, three, three this week, three next week, three till the end of June, every day, every week. God, tomorrow, New York Times author David Putnam will be there with the fabulous Moonlight Black series. On the 18th, former FBI agent Mark Balton, this is powerful, does your guy lie? On the 22nd, everyone we know and love, D.P. Lyle, cultured. Another person we know and love, W.P. Woodward, dead drop. Oh, you got to read that. On the 25th, I am so honored. Of course, it's going to be at 12 o'clock. The Bride Wore White, Amanda Quick, Jane Ann Krantz requested an interview with me. And on the 30th, Thunder Road. And on the 1st, what better way to start the month off than with James McCrone, Bassett Verdict. That's an interesting also true story about the referendum in Scotland and how they're trying to get away from Great Britain. There's a lot of controversy in the book. It's fantastic. So as you learn more about the results of the revolution, what changes happened in Cuba? Who benefited and who didn't? Uh, that's a really interesting question. Uh, and I mean, some of it is a little obvious. Uh, you know, certainly yeah. the the working classes and the toiling classes benefited at the expense of the rich and the middle class. So how does this mm. how does this apply to this story and to, yeah. to the Cuban jewelry? So what what your listeners should know is that ninety uh, percent of the fifteen thousand Jews in Cuba in, in 1960, ninety percent left. Within within uh, within a few years, mm-hmm. there's only about 1,200 Jews in Cuba in Havana today, and they're the descendants of those estates. So it's a very small number. Why did they become a target? They did not become a target because they were Jewish. Uh, every Cuban Jew I spoke to told me the same thing. There was mm-hmm. little to no anti-Semitism in Cuba, and I did a little reading. Uh, you know, to try to confirm this, and there were some issues around uh, German aid and the Nazis in the 30s, but there was no sort of endemic and entrenched anti-Semitism in Cuba the way we saw in in Europe. Um, so, but the Jews that came, and it's interesting, the Cubans did not refer to the Jews as Judea, which is Jew in Spanish. They referred to them as Polacos, which means Poles because the vast majority of them came from Poland. So they were not subject to anti-Semitism. They became the target of Castro's anti-entrepreneurial mm. movement, that they were business people, and they were, they were not necessarily all wealthy, but certainly they were well-to-do, they were comfortable, and they owned businesses. And their businesses, one by one, industry by industry, became a target of the government. Once the government passed agrarian reform, land reform, it was only a matter of time before they were going to re-examine the commercial sectors of society, manufacturing, sales, retail, 
all of these things and decide whether or not they were going to nationalize those sectors, which they did. So that started out as let's get the Americans out of here and take the Americans out of our business model. But it, you know, ultimately it turned out it turned into let's let's eliminate the entrepreneurial class, the bourgeois class, which is you know, right on a call marks. And as a result of this, the which really seriously affected the Jewish community, most of the Jews left. So that's how they became a target, you know, and it's interesting that they mm-hmm. really, all of this came to me in the, in the most strange and oddest places. So in September of 2021, as I was, uh, I'd already finished the first draft, I was working on edits for the second draft with the publisher, and um, I, I took a trip to Hungary, the Czech Republic of Slovakia with my son to take him to the towns where my grandparents were born. I, all my, grand, my, my grandparents all came from Europe. My mother's family came from that, from Austria-Hungary. So we were in Budapest, and we went to a place called the Museum of Terror, which was the brainchild of a certain Victor mm-hmm. Orban, the premier of Hungary, who was, is also the poster child for modern fascism. And, you know, he, he had this sort of this alternate reality about Hungarian history, so there were no Hungarian fascists. And, you know, the Hungarians were actually a victim of the Nazis and then a victim of the Soviets. So <clears throat> as I walked through this, this, this sort of faux museum, it occurred to me, and I understood, you know, what where the two systems intersected. And I also understood as a Jew, and a Jew who, you know, has lost hundreds of members of our family on both sides of the Holocaust, I understood sort of how both systems affected Jewish life. And the, the sad thing is it's applied directly to Cuba, because I've been working on this, and I realized that in Cuba what happened here was that the Jewish community got caught up as a target, not because they were Jewish, but because they were bourgeois. Mm. For those of you who don't know, bourgeois was a Marxist term for those mm. who uh, were involved in commerce and industry. My grandmother was in a Polish concentration camp. I'll never forget it when she told me the story. That's why I wrote it in my book, Accusations. It's true. Um, how she was, what, what they, x rays and horrible. And my grandfather came through the Polish underground in order to get her out and her sisters. It was horrific. And then my other grandmother oh, came. Terrible. It was horrible. My other grandmother was in Germany, and she came to America, and she lived with her aunt, and it was worse than living in. in I'm sorry, in Russia, worse than living in Russia, living with her aunt and what they did to her. So both stories are true and accusations, Rosie and Bertha. It's amazing. So who was Loves, and how does she change things for Moises, and who is Tio Benny? So, and whose son gets sick and needs more insulin? That was a big incident, and he can't get okay, it. Okay, so those are very disparate things. Uh, so let me uh, address some of that, okay? Luz is, um, is Moises' second wife. And in, mm-hmm. in, the real, in real life, Solomon had two wives. And his first wife was this dedicated communist. Mm-hmm. She was more dedicated to communism than she was to their marriage. And um, he had a second wife, and uh, Luce is his second wife. So Luce is a young girl from the countryside who becomes part of the movement, and she meets Moises, and ultimately they fall in love and they marry. So they have uh, a couple of kids. Now, you've got to remember that once, uh, once the, our own character leaves Cuba, he basically has no contact with his brother mm-hmm. going forward. Very, very, very limited. All right, uh, and there's a big question. I, 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 I discuss this with a lot of people, including the Bradmans. 
Um, and I did sort of as much research as I could on it. It appears that there was a lot of filtering going on through sensors mm-hmm. of anything that went in and out by mail. So the question, there is a question as to whether or not the letters that the real Aaron Cohn, uh, you know, Juan Bradman sent to Cuba to his brother ever reached there, and vice versa. Did anything that, that the Moises character, Solomon, Bradman, did any of those letters ever reach the United States? No. So what happens if we don't know? So there's definitely, a, in, in, the, in the reality realm, we know that there was some knowledge or concern about this because when the real Solomon Bradman finally establishes contact with Juan Bradman here, he sends a letter from Mexico City. All the letter says is, I have a son, he has diabetes, please send insulin, money, or both. Mm-hmm. So there was, this, you know, there was and is this embargo by the American government of the Cuban economy. And things like medication can't get through. So it was very difficult for them to treat the child for diabetic. But the result of this letter was a reestablishment of contact between the two parties, between the two brothers, and there were um, there were um, there were aid organizations, mostly based in Canada, that were able to aid in the transfer of information, money, and goods between American Jews and their you know, Cuban Jews in the United States, American Jews in general, and the, the Jews who remained in Cuba. And interestingly, uh, there was a review of the book coming out, and it's actually online from the Winnipeg Jewish News and Post. And that review also contains a lot of information about uh, what these Canadian aid groups did to help the Jews in Cuba. So any of your listeners that see Winnipeg Jewish News and Post, and it was, uh, the, the article was written by Bernie Ballon, B-E-L-L-A-N. Uh, and you might find the reading interesting. So um, what, and, and in real life, there was this whole situation with this diabetic uh, kid mm. and yes, the Bradmans here did help the Bradmans there to get him medicine and to, to keep him alive. And ultimately, when he made Aliyah to Israel, they helped him to get out of, uh, of Cuba and to go to Israel. So that, that part was absolutely based on truth. Although I had to, you know, as a writer, I had to think about, you know, what was mm-hmm. going on in Cuba. What was, the life, what was life like for people in Cuba at that time? And I had to do research in order to establish those facts and then portray those facts in this story. Well, you're almost like putting yourself living there and going through it yourself. So this, well, it's this interesting that you interesting. say that. It's really interesting that you say that, Fran, because I was interviewed by Tablet Magazine for this book, mm-hmm. and uh, they told me, you know, like, I was trying to explain to them, you know, the, the, the journalists kept asking me, you know, like, how did you do this? How'd you, do this? you have to understand that a writer... As a writer, particularly the type of writer that I am, which is called a panther, I just kind of sit down and write. There's no outline. We, if we were not writers, we would be considered crazy people because we have voices in our heads that talk to us. Mm-hmm. So as I develop the story in my head, the characters are talking to me. And it just comes out when I sit down at the computer. And that's sort of the secret to writing fiction, that these voices live in your head. So it's like yeah, it's- I'm not crazy. I'm just a writer. So my other question is, I'll have to answer. Um, tell us about the this. I was sorry that they weren't in the book. Tell us about the photos that Miriam found, and in 2012 she learns about her family in Havana, and 
how how did that change everything? Well, that's really more about uh, sort of Miriam's life than it is about yeah. you know the story. So let me first of all, there is a photograph uh, in the book, and it's in the e edition as well. Uh, there's one photograph that's on the back of the book of the Bradley yeah, I books. Yes, Okay, so um, what happened with with Miriam, and you know I can't really speak for Miriam because you know I'm not Miriam, is mm. that. Her parents, particularly her father, did not like to talk about what had happened to them in Cuba. Now, that's not unlike Holocaust survivors. They don't mm. really tell their kids. You know, I just, I just, uh, uh, I just did a, an acted as a moderator for uh, a Shoah program out in Riverhead, uh, Long Island, and I interviewed the daughter of a Holocaust, for two Holocaust survivors. And she said, as many do, exactly the same thing as, you know, they didn't like to talk about it, we didn't ask too many questions. And it wasn't until the, her parents were dead and she started to do a research and look at her old photographs mm-hmm. and things and objects she'd never seen that she found pictures of her mother's family that she'd never seen before. So this is sort of the same. And, and what had happened was that Marion came upon this stuff and she wanted to know more. And ultimately, she convinced her mother to take a trip to Cuba with her. And she told her mother, her father didn't, was completely opposed and said he would never go back to Cuba. He was afraid to go back to Cuba. And her mother said, okay, she'd go. And she said to her mother, if you don't go with me, I'm not going to really understand the context. But if you go with me, you can fill in the context and all the missing pieces. So they went to Cuba, and it really was a life-changing experience for her. She also met her uncle. You know, she, was, she was like a year old when they actually left Cuba. And the mm-hmm. only thing she knew about her uncle was a photograph of her uncle holding her at a birthday, like a first birthday. So, you know, she wanted to know the uncle, and she was able to establish. I mean, it, it, for those of you who may read the book, please don't, don't, uh, please don't read the story until you read the foreword, because the foreword is written yeah. by Miriam Abraham, and she explains all of this, and, and it's really, really important to the story. So what happens is she establishes a relationship with her cousin, the diabetic, who's still in Cuba at that time. And that sort of leads to this defrosting of the, of the whole family problem, and ultimately, uh, brother here, Juan, the Aaron character, brings Solomon, the Moises character, for a visit, which occurred, which happened actually during 9/11. So it, well, you know, it was rather dramatic. It's a, it was a rather dramatic uh, scene. So, well, if you uh, read my review, it does say that uh, the forward was written by her, so that people can know that they should read it. Yeah, they they most definitely it. should read it. You know, I always tell people read the forward and the acknowledgments and the historical notes in, in historical did. novels, but it does it does flesh things out of it. It's just that the last one that I read had a forward that was not too bad, but the author wrote an introduction that was longer than most chapters of the book. It was interesting, though, and it yeah. was called The Exorcist, 50 Years of Fear of the True Story by um, Nat Segaloff and William Peter Blatty. So sometimes they're, they're, they're long, and sometimes even the afterward was like uh, 20 pages to read. Sure. So yeah, when they're short and sweet and gets to the point, that that is great. So, at the end, how did you create, without giving the ending, how did you create the dramatic twist at the end? And of all the people that you interviewed, who's still alive in the family? Okay, so first of all, towards the end of the book, because I don't want to give too much away. Don't give it away, because it's too surprising. Right. The, the reason why I established the, the uh, inciting incident, the incident at San Miguel in the book, which yeah. is fictitious, was to establish a quid pro quo. 
at the end of the book, in the last few pages of the book, we learn what the quid pro quo between the two brothers was. And when that finally, when, when that finally comes out, it balances the scales between them. So one interesting point about the end of the book is that the, the initial book, the initial draft of the book had a two or three page epilogue, mm-hmm. which um, was set, you know, some years later after um, the Moises character died. And I had two beta reading groups, and what was interesting is all the writers said, no, 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 drop the epilogue. But all the non-writing readers said, no, we love the epilogue, which was kind of the Disney ending. But I went for the literary ending. So mm-hmm. uh, if anybody reads the book and they'd like to see the Disney ending, they can contact me at aj at ajsadransky.com, and I'm happy to send them the three pages. Um, so, so that's how I created that. Um, what was that other last question you had for me there? Um, what's what's um, oh, which which relatives okay. which people are still alive? Okay, so all right, so a few shout outs here. So uh, Miriam's parents, you know, I spoke to Miriam extensively about the story and all of her collected interviews, and I read her materials. And so um, her parents are both alive, and I I you know sat with them for many many hours, and I have a have them all on recordings, which I plan to give to Miriam next time I see her. And um, Paul's sister is alive, so I spoke to her, mm-hmm. and then I started combing through my connections through the book club world, and I was able mm-hmm. to locate people who came from Havana in the early, late 50s, early 50s, who had, you know, who had become refugees because of the revolution, most of them located in Miami. I spoke to, in the end, I interviewed over 30 people. Uh, there was a very, then there was a very interesting woman who I met another one through another book club uh, out in Staten Island who lives in Jersey, and she was also, uh, uh, well, she actually came, she came before because she came to the United States and married an American, but her family was affected by all this, and she gave me a lot of very interesting backstory stuff. Like, for instance, there's a, there's a scene in which I describe this rooftop that Anna Teresa's grandmother lives on, where she has a shack on a rooftop. That's, a, that's real. This woman, mm. her grandmother, lived in exactly that situation. She lived in a grand oh, God. shack on top of a roof of a five-story building in, in Viejo, uh, Havana Viejo, the old Havana. So in all, I spoke to about 30 people, give or take one or two, and they were all people who had been born in Cuba and become refugees or they were the children of those refugees. And they were able to confirm for me a lot of what I learned from, um, you know, from, from the Bradford. Now, interestingly, uh, I have a friend uh, who is a reviewer, she, revi- she writes from Charlotte Jewish News. And I sent her the book for review, and she writes in her review that she wanted to know more. So she contacted a couple of families in the Charlotte area who mm. were the children of Cuban Jewish refugees. And they, gave, they told her their stories, which she recounts in this review, one of them. And uh, it confirmed for her what you know, what I had written about their the experience of trying to leave Cuba at that time. So that, for me as a writer, as a, a writer of historical fiction, was really tremendous because mm-hmm. I, was able to, I was able to confirm uh, an additional time that the information that I had gotten that I had used to build this story was in fact correct. Uh, all I could tell you is that my grandmother came from the concentration camp in Poland, 
except the truth about who she really was, I didn't find out until she died. And I never well, knew. We don't find out truth in life. My grandfather was happened. married to my real grandmother, who died when my mother was born, when my mother was two. She died in childbirth. And I've been trying to find out more about her because they claim, and I don't know, that I'm just like her. Uh, my real my grandmother Katie, my grandmother Katie was was my rock, and thank God for her. And she told me her story about the concentration camp before she died. So all the stories and accusations, five of them are true, because they were dictated by the person that that was either wrongly accused or, in her case, her voice was silenced. So this this is really a powerful story. So what's next for you, and where can everybody? Get all of your books. And Mother's Day is coming on Sunday, people. So what's next is always going to get a laugh because I've done so much writing about fascism and communism and the heartbreak that comes to individual families and individuals from it that the next book is going to be about baseball. Oh, cool. That's even better. Life, more life. So my next book, I actually have two things I'm working on. One of them is a book about baseball, which is set partially in the Dominican Republic where I spend part of my winter. And it's partially based on a young man who is the son of a friend of mine down there who is actually the cousin of my best friend. And this kid was signed by the Washington Nationals a year ago for $4 million. He's playing in the minor leagues now. And, you know, we expect him to be up in the major leagues another year or two. So, you know, it's very exciting to write a book about the Dominican connection to Major League Baseball. And the title of that will be Fielder's Choice. Then I'm working on another thing called Get Me Feldman, which is a satire that's actually based on Le Miserable. And I take mm. the basic premise of Le Miserable and I move it from, you know, France in the first part of the 19th century to, to uh, South Florida in the first part of the 21st century in a, um, in a retirement home populated by mostly Jews and Italians from New York and Chicago. So that I'm working on now as well, and I'm very excited about that. You can purchase my books um, on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Kobo, Apple Books. It's available on Audible. Uh, I urge you to purchase on Amazon because, frankly, Amazon pays the best royalty to authors. So if you don't like there, you can buy it elsewhere. Um, if you want to read the book from the library, go into your local library and ask them to, to buy it. And if you're looking in a bookstore, do the same thing. If they don't have it, just ask them to get it. It's available to bookstores in both KDP in England. So, um, well, I have a very interesting you know, well, comment I, that just well, came on my just reviews for you. Somebody just read my review of your book. Yeah. Oh, you're going to like this one. It says, yeah. families link together, and yet after the incident at San Miguel, Things change. One brother linked to one movement, the other to the movement. Love good historical political writing and will certainly take a look. Thank you, Fran Lewis, for reviewing such an interesting book. Irma Fritz. Oh, thank you. I hope you enjoy it. But remember, all, all of the, you lit readers out there, please buy my book. Please read my book. Please review my book on Amazon. But please don't lend my book to anybody. Make no, they're not allowed to have it, except that my doctor's wife will... One, because I told them about it yesterday. That's right. She, she, I mean, she's got ten bookcases of whatever. She loves me. But thank you so much. This brightened my whole day. Trust me. <laughs> Everybody, no, if thank you, you read, man. This was great, as it always is. It's a delight to speak with you. 
It's this incident is how Miguel is important. Everybody's going to read it. Um, I'm going to have to fix the promo because my publicist forgot to put all the stuff I want. I'm going to add some more pictures to the slideshow, and I'm going to try to put some of these um, accolades in the slideshow so people could read them and review them and love it. Thank you so much, everybody. It's a beautiful day. Have a great day. Think positive, and bye. Fran, you there? Yes, ma'am.